0: You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Ruth chapter 2 this morning. We'll begin at verse number 17 in just a moment. For those of you this morning who are coming late to the game, and you don't know where we're at in the story, we have been going over the book of Ruth now for the last month or so. The book of Ruth is a wonderful book, one of the greatest short love stories in the world. A great story. It begins with a man named Elimelech who comes from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is, of course, one of the cities in, in Israel's jurisdiction. And there's a famine in the land. The famine has come because of sin. God's people have turned their backs on him. They've decided to go their own way. And so what Elimelech does is he decides to take his family and leave God's land and and take them 50 to 75 miles away into Moab, which is a pagan nation. They worship a false god, Chemosh. They're a perverse and wicked nation. He goes there looking for life, but what he finds there is death. And shortly after his death, his two sons are there with their, their mother, Naomi, And they find two Moabite women to marry, Orpah and Ruth. And so they get married, they're in the land for ten years, and then they, those two sons, die as well. It's tragic. It's a tragedy, chapter 1. And now we find Naomi left with her two daughters-in-law, and she hears word that God is working among his people and that bread is back in the land, and so she decides to go home. After ten years, she's going home. And she says to her daughters-in-law, she says, listen, There's nothing in Bethlehem for you. Yahweh, the true God, is there. I'm going home to Him. Go back to your God. Go back to your people. And they have a discussion and they say, we will not go. Orpah, then the one daughter-in-law, decides to go back to her people. But Ruth cleaves, the Bible says, to her mother-in-law. And she says, this is a great statement, she says, Wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth is converted to the true God. They travel back then to Bethlehem. They go there, and while they're there now, they come back to a land, but they have no harvest, they have no crop, they have nothing. And so Ruth then decides to go out into the workplace And to glean something so that her and her mother-in-law can live. She's an industrious woman, a hard-working woman. And we see then God orchestrates by his providence the fact that Ruth ends up in a field belonging to someone who is related to Elimelech. And they start to see now God's hand work and unfold in their life. The man's name is Boaz. He's a good man. He's a godly man. He loves the Lord. He's a man of integrity. And he takes compassion on Ruth and he provides for her, he takes care of her, he prays for her and he prays that she would be blessed and that she would find rest and comfort under the Lord in whose wings she came for safety. And so they have this conversation and when Ruth is done on that day, look at verse 17 of chapter 2. So she gleaned in the field until even and beat out that she had gleaned and it was about Uh, ephod of barley, which is about 22 liters. It's a huge, huge uh, cash crop for her. She's worked this day. She worked from sunup to sundown. And now she comes home with something substantial for her mother-in-law. Verse 18. And she took it up and went out to the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. And her mother-in-law said unto her, where in the world did you work today? That's, that's, it's, if you're reading, that's what it says, right? That's modern. Where in the world did you work? I mean, how did you get a paycheck like that in one day? Who are you working for? And then he says, Blessed be he that hath taken knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought and said, The man's name with whom I work today was Boaz. And Naomi said unto her, Blessed be the Lord. And Naomi knows this is a relative. Uh, She knows that this is a near kinsman. She knows that God has providentially worked now in the life of Naomi and Ruth. She says, Praise the Lord. God has not left us without uh, his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. And and you're going to hear, I think you're going to hear in this, as we go on, as Naomi talks to her daughter-in-law, this Jewish kind of flavor of an older woman woman trying to get her, her daughter-in-law, who is widowed now, a husband. And you can almost hear her say, Oh, Boaz, he's a nice boy, that Boaz, right? He's a good boy. He's a, he's a man of integrity. Boaz, Boaz is a good boy, Ruth. You should stay in his field, Ruth. And this is a conversation. You'll see it unfold here. This is a mother for her daughter. We're going to marry this girl off, right? Verse number 21. And Ruth the Moabitess said, He said unto me also, There's more, Mom. Listen to this. Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. He says, listen, I want you to stay here until the work is done. Six or seven weeks of harvest, barley harvest, uh, and I think it was wheat harvest, six or seven weeks, stay here, work here. I want you to take whatever you can and glean from the young men here. And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter. You can hear it, right? This Jewish, hmm, that thou go with his maiden. Uh, that they meet thee not in another field. Stay where you're at, sweetheart. This is a good deal for you, Ruth. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter. Can you hear it right? It, this is, it's common now. My daughter. Shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? Listen, sweetheart, I'm worried about, about you. You're, you're probably between 24, 30-something years old right now. She's been widowed for 10 years. Uh, and in this economy, Ruth and Naomi, they need someone to take care of them. And so Naomi says, my daughter, listen to me. I'm concerned for, uh, for you. And, and don't you know that um, Boaz is a good man? I want it to be well with thee. And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast. Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. And what's happening here is now the harvest is is ending, and they they have they have this gleaning take place. And there's been a famine in the land, and so they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna harvest what they have. They're gonna winnow the the wheat and the barley. and, And what's gonna happen is as they have it now, the owners of of these crops would spend the night there to guard from thieves and robbers. This was the payday for them. They have it all together. And so here is Boaz now. They're, they're harvesting. And he says he's going to be there tonight. She says in verse number 3, Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment on thee, and get thee down to the floor. Here's what she says. Boaz, he's a good man. <laughs> Clean up. Wash yourself. Put some perfume on, all right? Get your best clothes on. He's going to be there tonight. I want to orchestrate this meeting for Boaz. She's really concerned that her daughter-in-law now, who's widowed, can be married again to Boaz. And so she's giving her instructions. Get thee down there, but make not thyself known unto the man until he hath done eating and drinking. And it shall be, when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, her All that thou sayest unto me will I do. Now hold your horses for a second, all right? Because your mind right now might be thinking some things that are absolutely wrong. Okay? We'll talk about that in a minute. Here's a my mother-in-law saying, listen, go gussy up, wash yourself, get clean, go down there, don't reveal yourself, but when he lays down tonight, lay yourself at his feet while he's sleeping. And in our culture, in our society, think, wait a minute now, this is really bad advice. Is she a floozy? What's going on here? Verse number six. Because there are some people that, that they interpret this the wrong way. Verse 6. I'm going to read to verse number 9, then we'll make some comments. And she went down onto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, and he went to lay down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down, and it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid. He's sleeping. He's out. At midnight. He has this weird feeling that something's not right. Creepy. You know when you're sleeping, you have a sense that something's going on? Uh, I, I know what kid it was when they were younger. I won't say which one it was because I would embarrass them because they're here this morning. <laughs> Only two options. It's David and Greg, right? But when Greg was younger, <laughs> we, we would be sleeping and he would come in, and when I say younger, like 18 years old, and, it, and he, would, he would come in and he would... He didn't want to wake us up. No, he's probably about five or four. But he'd come in and he would just stare at us. I mean, he'd stand there and stare at us. It's creepy, man. And, and you have this sense, parents. You know what I'm talking about, right? These kids are weird, and they, and they, and they stare at you. And it's like you know you're sleeping in this wonderful dream, and it's nice and warm and cuddly. And all of a sudden, it's like something's wrong. You open your eyes, there's a kid standing there. And so Boaz is sleeping, and all of a sudden, it's like kicking his feet, and something's down there. This is not right. He's afraid. He's nervous. And he said, who are you? And she said, I'm Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread, therefore, thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Now let me just talk to you for a minute, okay? Because there are those who read that passage right there and say, listen, there there is something sexual happening here. And I tell you something, there is not. Okay? Let me make some comments to you this morning. And again, my wife is not here. I'm unfiltered, so just hang on. Okay? Uh, Ruth's desire is right. She wants to be married. It's a natural desire, it's a holy desire. But holy desires have holy outlets as well. People think of the Word of God and they think of it as a book that's full of prudes, and somehow that God is against sexuality. God is not. a matter of fact, it was God's idea. In the beginning, he made them male and female, and God said, it is good. You be careful when people say, oh yeah, the Bible forbids everything. That's not true. God says there's a glory in our sexuality. God says that. God made that. God said it's good. But here's what God says. God says it's good and pure and right within the confines which I've designed. And the confines are marriage. Marriage. Why did God do that? Because God created us. He knows what's best for us, He knows how we thrive, He knows what we need. And marriage is given in a covenant relationship. It means together we covenant that it's you, it's me, till death do us part. In this covenant, there is protection, there is safety. There is commitment. And God is not a killjoy. God has given us good gifts. Wonderful gifts. But he gives us parameters so that we're safe and we, and we enjoy them like God intended. Okay? Her desires are natural here to be a wife. That's a good thing. But I want you to know something. What she's asking here is not anything It's sexual. It's not. a matter of fact, that phrase that she's laying at his feet, first off, and the phrase that she says is, spread your skirt over me. It's interesting to note, that word skirt there is the same word that's used in chapter 2 when Boaz prays for her and says, let the wing of the Lord, which you've come underneath, protect you. The shadow of his wings. It's the same idea there. And what she is saying is, listen to me, I am a widow, you're single, I'd like to be married She is proposing that he propose to her, which is really a classy act. That's what she's doing. She is proposing that he proposes to her. And this is a lovely way of saying, listen to me, do the job of a kinsman redeemer. Protect me, love me, take care of me within the confines of God's relationships. That's what she's saying. And you're going to see it. I'm not making this up. You're going to see this as we read through the text. This is like asking him to put a ring on her finger. That's what she's doing here. And so she says this, and and Boaz is like, Wow! Verse 10. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end then at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, neither poor or rich. And this is insightful to me. I really do believe, I believe Ruth was beautiful. I do. I think, I think she turned his head early on. I think she was beautiful. And I think here we get the impression that Boaz was not that great. Because he says, man, God bless you. You were kind to Naomi. But this later kindness is even better. And the later kindness is this. You're not going after young guys. Whether rich or poor, you're coming after me. I think Boaz knows she is way out of his league. He's older. I don't think he's great looking. I think he's just an average guy. But all guys, of course, think they're great looking. I don't know if you've seen this before, but there's a great thing on, on Facebook, YouTube, about the Dove, the Dove commercial with women. How, how women perceive themselves, and they have an artist come in, they sketch a picture as, as, as they describe themselves, and it's always, it's, it's always very critical. And then they have a friend come in, and the friend describes them, and the picture that they make is beautiful. It's, it's, really, it's a great exercise. You should see it. For women, it's right on. Then someone did a spoof on men, <laughs> the same thing, and then we're like, yeah, I'm beautiful, I'm good looking, I think I'm a young Denzel Washington. And their idea of themselves is so... It's ridiculous. And so the the artist carries a picture like Brad Pitt or George Clooney and then when they ask other women to come in and talk about them they look like monsters, right? It's it's true. And that's how we think. But he knows she is way out of his league. And he says, man, God bless you. I'd love to marry you. I can't believe that you're proposing that I propose to you. I can't believe it. Verse 11. And now my daughter... Fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Again, that's important. There's nothing improper going on here. He says again, everybody knows, Ruth, you're a virtuous woman. You have character, integrity. You're a godly woman. Everything above board. And now it is true, I am thy near kinsman, but there's a problem there is a kinsman nearer than I am. And if you've been following the story, the near kinsman was the one who was responsible to take care of those who were widowed and didn't leave a seed to carry on the name. And Boaz says, I would love to do the job of a kinsman. I would love to marry you, but there's a problem. There's someone in front of me. And in, in Bible times, and in, in the Jewish culture... There was a, an order. It was the, the father, then sons and daughters, and then it was a brother, and then an uncle from the father's side, and then the near kinsman. And so what Boaz is saying is look at, I'm not the closest one in line to do what you're asking. There's somebody before me. And what's interesting to note about that someone is the Bible never gives her name. We're going we're to introduce you to that fellow in chapter 4. We don't even know the guy's name. And there's a reason for that. He was the one who was supposed to take care of Naomi. And Ruth. And he does nothing. He it's not worth mentioning his name. This is not Boaz's responsibility. It's not Boaz's job. Oh, he wants to be kind to them, and he has been. But it's not his job to be the kinsman redeemer. He does what he does out of love and out of grace. And it's important to remember that. He's not compelled to do what she's asking for. Matter of fact, he's not next in line to do it. Somebody, somebody else, some slacker who didn't do it, is supposed to be doing it. He says, listen, I'll do whatever I can do. Terry, this night, and again, tarry this night, there are robbers, don't go out in the dark, you're a good-looking girl, don't go out there. And it shall be in the morning that if he will perform unto thee the part of the kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman part, he should do it. But if he will not do the part of the kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee as the Lord liveth, Lay down until the morning." He said, "Oh, pastor, there you go. Again, wait a minute. Well, listen. And she lay down at his feet until the morning, at his feet, until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another, and he said, "Let it not be known that a woman came unto the floor." What is he doing? He's protecting her purity and her reputation. I want you to be safe, don't go out. But leave early enough so no one knows that you're here. You're a woman of virtue. You're a woman of purity. You're a godly woman. Let's maintain your reputation. Reputation is important. You are known by your name. Great exercise. Ask somebody hey, when you say, hear my name, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? That's your reputation. When people speak your name, what words come to their mind? I I said this years ago. And and when I said it, Marjorie was here. And I said, when I say Marjorie Carr, what comes to mind? Mean, cruel, no, lovely, godly, sweet. That's her character. That's her reputation. And Boaz is saying, listen, I want to protect your reputation. Go out. Don't let me know you're here. You're a virtuous woman. Verse 15. Also, he said, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her, and she went onto the city. Now, six measures of barley, I'm not sure exactly what it is. The, the, the earlier amount for the uh, ephod was 22 liters. Uh, this is at least a month worth of food for two single women. This is like going to Costco, right, and, and having a month of food coming home with it. That's what, that's what just happened to her. He blesses her. He, he just abundantly, man, the guy is good. Wouldn't you like to have a Boaz, ladies? Right? He's good. He's kind, he's gracious, he's godly, he's giving. What a great example. He fills up the veil. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How's it going? (laughs) What happened? All right, let me see your finger. Is there a ring on that? You know, how'd it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still. Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. And they're all excited. You know, these two women are together like, Oh, what happened? You know, They're all, You know, run off to the bathroom together and they're talking about what happened there, right? <laughs> what happened? She tells him, and, she, and they're all excited and they're just all giddy and laughing and giggling and bubbly. And then the mother in law says this wait. Wait. Don't you hate waiting? I hate it. If there's a train coming and I see it, I will find out what direction it's going. I will drive three miles the other way, just so I'm moving, so I don't have to wait. We're impatient people. And God says to many of us this morning. Wait. Wait. Hold on. Lord, I don't know. I can't see. I'm not sure. What should I do next? I mean, what's going to happen? And God says, wait. Wait. And waiting's hard. Waiting's difficult. We're not supposed to wait like, oh, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Oh, it stinks. Wait patiently on the Lord. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall walk and not be weary. They shall run and not faint. We can wait on him. We can trust him. He is good. He is kind. He will do what he said. He won't rest until it's finished. You can wait on the Lord. You can trust him. You can put your soul in his hand like a faithful creator. Wait on him. It's not easy. It's difficult. It's hard. But wait. Chapter 4. Then went Boaz unto the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom we do not speak, his name we don't mention, right? He comes by and he says, hi ho neighbor, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi is come again out of the country of Moab. She's selling a parcel of land which our brother Elimelech, Owned. And, and remember this, the city gate is a place, it's like um, uh, the courthouse, it's like town hall, it's where official business was gathered, this is where you do your, your legal work. And so he, he finds this guy, sits down, gets some witnesses, and says, look, at, here's what's happening, Naomi's selling some property, we've got to do this legally now. Verse 4, And I thought to advertise these, saying, buy it before the inhabitants, and before the elders of my people, if thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou will not redeem it, then tell me and I'll, that I'll, I can know, and I will redeem it. it. Because, let's see, he says, there is none to redeem beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I'll redeem it. And so here's this guy who says, he, he's not been concerned with Naomi, not been concerned with Ruth. And he says, here's a chance to buy their property and get some more land, Farmer Joe. And he says, okay, I'll buy it. I'm going to redeem it. And then what Boaz does is classic. He does this kind of Columbo th- deal. You remember Columbo? Where he walks over and says, oh, by the way, ah, one more thing, right? And Bo says, one more thing. If you buy that field, you've got to purchase Ruth and bring up an heir for her family. And the guy says, hey, wait a minute. He says, I have a son. And if I do that, that will mar my inheritance. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to mess up my part, I'm not going to rock the boat, forget it, you can buy the land. And so they make the deal. And in Bible days, they, to make a deal, they would take off a shoe and exchange it. I know we would think that was weird, but that's what they did. It was a legal binding contract. The witnesses see it happen. And so they make the deal. Verse number 9. And Boaz said unto the elders, and to so all the people, ye are witnesses this day, and I have uh, brought, all, I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Mahon's, Malon's and all the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased, and that idea of purchase is to redeem, to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon the inheritance that the name of the dead be not cut off from among the, his brethren. And from the gate of this place ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou wor- worthily in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. After ten years of marriage, no child. They they get married, and, and God gives them a son. And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And and he said, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of life and a nourisher of thine own age. Isn't it amazing how grandchildren change grandparents? Says this kid's going to come, he's going to change your life. He's going to be a nourisher for you. He's going to bless you in your old age. He's going to restore your life. And we see that today. My my parents, um, they're not the same parents that raised me when I see them with my, my kids, Right? It's like, what happened to you? What did you do with my parents? My parents were never like that. They're playing on the floor. They're happy. Oh, they spilled something. No big deal. It's like, you didn't do that when I was a kid. So grand, grandchildren do that. That's what they're saying. This kid's going to restore your life. Naomi, what a beautiful... Let's we'll talk about it tonight. What a beautiful picture. We start with tragedy and emptiness. We come to the end of the book, and there's life and fullness. That's our God. Because no matter where you're at in life, when you come to the end of the book its fullness, and joy evermore. Verse 16. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. What a great story. We we come to the end and and here we have this child being born from, from Boaz and from Ruth, who is Obed, who then has a son named Jesse, who then has a son, David. And we know the rest of the story, who eventually have a son named Jesus Christ. What a great truth, great book. I want to end this morning by just talking again about the Kinsman Redeemer because we come to a place, when we see that come to fruition, if you remember, early in our study, we talked about the kinsman redeemer, the next in line who, was, who, was, who had the right and responsibility to take all of the loss, the ruin, the brokenness, to intervene in the life of those who were damaged and destroyed and to take it upon himself. We also mentioned that this name, Goel, or, or redeemer, is a name often used with God himself, that God is our redeemer. He acts the same way. We saw in the life of Boaz uh, that he sees Uh, Ruth, he pursues her. He goes beyond the requirements of the law and he shows her grace. The reason I bring that up this morning is because as we sit here in the 21st century as human beings, we instinctively know within our hearts that uh, there is right and wrong. We know that. We know that there is, we have a sense of justice, we have a sense of guilt. Every one of us in this room, we we understand that there's an accountability that we have to a creator bigger than us. We understand we have violated his laws. We understand that there's a coming judgment. And whether we suppress that or not, we know in our heart of hearts, it's there. God has put eternity in the hearts and minds of all men and women. We know that there's something more. We know that there's life after death. We know that there's judgment someday. The New Testament tells us that every man is afraid of death. Whether you admit it or not, it is a great unknown. And the heart of every man and every woman longs to appease God or some God because they know they have transgressed his law. And whether they try to do it through a religion, through an organization, through a good cause or work or through themselves, they're looking to appease this God. I have, to, I have news for you this morning. Christianity answers man's deepest heartfelt need. Christianity says... There has been a divine rescue. We call it redemption. And this is a story we find in Ruth. It is a story of redemption. Redemption. Of all the names that we think of for the Lord Jesus Christ that are sweet, and there are so many, perhaps the sweetest for me is Redeemer. Redeemer. Our kinsman Redeemer. The one who purchased us with his own blood. The one who paid the price for my sin. The one who redeemed me. And all of us were in the marketplace of sin, on the blocks. We were sinners condemned to die. And Jesus Christ redeemed us. He purchased us. He bought us out of the marketplace of sin. Is it any wonder that Charles Haddon Spurgeon calls calls Jesus our great and glorious Boaz? He takes our loss, our ruin, our brokenness. He intervenes. He takes it upon himself. He sees us. He pursues us. He goes beyond the requirements of the law. And he shows us amazing grace. And it is any, any wonder this morning, as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as Paul reads about redemption, he, 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 it's almost in ecstasy, he says, The love of Christ constrains me. It, I can't believe it. It blows my mind as I think that Jesus Christ would die for me. His life for mine. How could it ever be? The boys and I were talking last week, and I don't know which one it was, but we were talking about this idea of, of the Bible and the story of the Bible and, and how everyone loves the idea of a hero and You know, the hero comes in and he saves a day and the damsel in distress or the innocent party and the hero comes in and he saves them and we love that story. But let me tell you a greater story of a hero who comes in and what he saves is the villain. The sinner. The rebel. The one who has turned his back on God. The one who has spit in his face. The one who said... I will not have this man reign over me. And this hero, Jesus Christ, comes and he dies for the villain. That's an unbelievable story. That story is almost too good to be true. And yet this is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. This redemption overwhelmed Paul. This thought controlled him. It drove him. It motivated him. He said, "The love of Christ constrains me to joyfully serve and worship Him." It changed my life. And this morning, as we finish the book of Ruth, we'll finish tonight, but if we finish this portion. I want you to think about redemption. The book speaks of the Redeemer redeeming us. And this morning, remember this: our Redeemer lives. He lives. A redeemer. I'm not who I used to be because I've been redeemed. I've been set free. So I'll shake off these heavy chains, wipe away every stain. I'm not the man I used to be. Redemption. This morning, I want to challenge you. Because when Paul thinks of redemption and what Christ has done, that Jesus Christ would actually die in his place it changed everything. When Ruth was redeemed, it changed everything. And my question this morning is this, why is it that we as believers who every week we come to church, we hear the story, we hear of redemption, we hear of salvation, we know the story. Christ died for our sins. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. Him. we know that. But it doesn't change us. My friend, listen to me. Something's wrong with believers who can look at redemption, understand redemption, and understand that Jesus Christ gave His life for you. How is it then that we have men for the last 20 years who have never changed? They're still arrogant. They're still selfish. They're still greedy. They're still men that don't have any integrity. They don't work hard. They're lazy. How is it that we have women who are gossiping and they're critical, and it seems like nothing has changed in their life? How is it that we have teenagers who who are great on Sunday, but come Monday morning you never know they were believers in Christ? How is it that God's people can hear this great truth, and it can drive us to our knees, and yet we're not changed by it? Paul said, after thinking about redemption, about our Redeemer, this blessed Redeemer that we have, that we cling to, in light of that, it motivates me. It drives me. And then he says this. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Christian, do you understand redemption? I have a hunch for some of us, we have no clue. Paul said, I thus judge, if one died for me, then we were all dead. And that he died for us, maybe we ought to live for him. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, that seems reasonable. If, if someone died for me, and not just died for me, but died to pay the price of my eternal death, that just maybe I should live for him. Hey, Christian, redemption means that maybe you ought to live for him. And we're wasting our time. And we're wasting our lives. And our conversations and our hobbies and our goals are trite and meaningless and worldly. And I submit to you this morning, if that's you, if that's me, and at times it is, then we have lost sight of what it means to be redeemed. You have been bought with a price. And it's not something corruptible like gold, And silver, which we think is the most precious thing in the world. And and the writer of the scripture says, listen, as precious as that is, it is corruptible compared to what you were bought with. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And in light of that, Christian, wake up. We should live a life that pleases Him. We should live a life where we follow Him. We should live a life that means something. It should compel us to live for Him. And so this morning, as we look at the book of Ruth, there is a Redeemer. Jesus Christ, God's own Son. The precious Lamb of God, Messiah. It's it's Christ. He's given himself for us. He is our great, glorious Boaz. And we should love him like Ruth. (laughs) We should give our everything, our all to him. And so let me challenge you. Quit screwing around. Quit wasting your life. Quit playing church on a Sunday morning. Don't leave here and just, oh, turn on the TV, what's going on in sports? Why don't you think about your Redeemer and think of Him all the day long. I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is a theme of my song. Our Redeemer. We thank God for Jesus Christ. Allow that thought this morning and for the days to come to change us, to radically change us, as his people. Let's pray this morning.